Thanks for joining us at Colts to Consciousness. This storytelling podcast is meant to be for entertainment purposes only and does not substitute for any medical advice. We may discuss triggering topics and we ask that you make your personal mental health a priority. Lastly, the opinions of our guests do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the host. It was growing up in a religious prison camp. For the first 10 years of my life, I saw my parents for one hour a day. And other than that, I was in dorms with other children. We would work for most of the morning, basically cleaning and doing manual labor in the communes. My mom's married off to the prophet when she's 13 and expected to sleep with whatever men demanded of her. And suddenly they realize, okay, this is a problem. She's pregnant, the father's 39 years old. If this starts happening a lot, the cops are gonna come shut us down hard. Hey, my name is Shalise Ansola, and this is Cults to Consciousness, where we discuss leaving high demand religions or organizations and finding healing and independence through awareness and true individual sovereignty. If you're listening only, definitely go to my YouTube where you can see our faces at Cults to Consciousness. You can like, subscribe, hit the bell so you don't miss an episode where we're trying to release more episodes per week. So make sure that you don't miss that. And it's just fun to join in on the conversation. I love interacting with you as much as possible. So today's guest, this is someone who was recommended by one of you guys, uh, Gwendolyn on Instagram. Thank you for making the connection. And it's something that has been requested also. Big shout out to Sunny McNair, a commenter who introduced me to the Children of God cults through one of their comments. So when Gwendolyn reached out on Instagram with someone who was part of the Children of God, I was really excited to do the interview. I also want to take this moment to put out a very big content warning for this episode. We will be discussing Child SA and it is very heavy and it's one of those topics that can be hard to listen to. So please make your mental health a top priority while listening through this. This woman grew up in the Children of God cult. And they'll tell you they are fundamentalist evangelicals, born again missionaries who preach that the end is at hand. But critics, including some former members, take a more sinister view. They describe a scary sex obsessed doomsday sect which abuses children and practices mind control. And then as the years went by, because he was perverted himself, he tried to think of justifications. So he got a revelation that God's only law was love, that when Jesus came, he fulfilled the original law, the Ten Commandments, and that his only law was love. And in order to show God's love to normal people, because they can't understand spiritual love, you have to show it through sex. I was subjected to two months of one of the most incredible ordeals of brainwashing, of exorcisms, of hard labor. My personal effects were burned. I was, I was laid on the floor in a, in a ritual exorcism where the spirit of my mother was cast out of Why me. Why did you just leave? Because after having been in that situation for four years, I was under a, an immense amount of fear and guilt that God would strike me dead. And I was ordered in the group to have sex with a 10-year-old by the leadership of the group. Did you? Yes.
She was third generation in this cult, mostly grew up in South America. And at 15, she was able to escape, put herself through school, went to college, uh, just completely transformed her life, took back that control, that sovereignty, and then found herself in the army. She was part of the first female engagement team and rose up to the ranks. And we're going to be talking a lot about that in another episode after we dive into her childhood. But first... Thank you so much for joining us, Daniela Mestanek-Young. Thank you so much for having me, Shilis. I'm excited to be here. Absolutely. And I forgot to mention one of the biggest parts of your intro. You wrote a book called Uncultured. And oh my goodness, I was speed listening to this because after we were introduced, we um, decided to record pretty soon thereafter. And I wanted to make sure to get through your book. And so pretty much all day yesterday, I'm just glued to my bed, listening to the audio version, listening to you tell it, which was really beautiful. And it just hit me in so many different ways. I was crying at one point. I'm cheering for you in other points. It is just a heart-wrenching story as it is inspirational and beautiful. And I just have to say, from someone who is also a survivor of not only being raised in a cult, nothing like yours, but a survivor of that and also childhood abuse, I just have to say thank you for sharing your story and for being so brave and for being so vulnerable. It really touched me yesterday in a way that I I wasn't expecting, I guess, because, you know, when you're going through the traumas and you're like, oh, I'm fine. I'm I've put that behind me. And then something comes up and you're like, well, looks like I got some work to do. <laughs> so I just think it's beautiful that you're able to share your story so openly and allow other people to give them give them the permission to heal like you did. I think it's it's just really beautiful. So thank you. Thank you so much for saying that, you know, and I'm sure you talk about this a lot because of cults to consciousness. But I think when you said, you know, we think we went through it and we think we heal, but so many of us have the tendency to just walk away from these high demand religions and not try to think about it and not try to deal with it. And this is sort of one of the themes of uncultured was like, I escaped them at 15. I walked away. I got my education. Supposedly I was fine. And I had this idea that I could just sort of out perfection, all of it, right? I could just not think about it. And I could just keep doing what we're all trained to do and high control religions, which is just be perfect and be number one. And finally, when you're a captain in the army, and you're still not healed, and you still feel broken, you know, you kind of see the lie there. Um, And so I, I appreciate that, you know, and I found so many other people's stories to be my guide when I finally realized I needed to start dealing with this. And so it's really beautiful that now my story can do that for other people too. Yeah, absolutely. And I forgot to mention as well in the intro that you are about to graduate with, I don't want to get this wrong, a Master of Arts in Organizational Psychology from a Harvard Extension School. Congratulations! Thank you so much. It's really cool. I mean, they... They conferred the degree this March, which was literally 20 years exactly from when I walked away from the cult. Oh my Graduating gosh. on my birthday. They already oh. sell uncultured at the Harvard bookstore. So it's really, really cool. And, you know, I think so, so many times we're like kind of going through our lives and doing things we're interested. In, and now I kind of look back and it's like, 
yeah, I was raised in a cult and then I joined the army, which is another kind of cult and, <laughs> you know, studied terrorists, which is another kind of extreme group, high demand groups. And then studying group behavior at Harvard, you know, sort of, I come up on, come out on the other side now, as I like to say, as a scholar of cults, extreme groups and extremely bad leadership. Yes. And, you know, really, I like to focus on the parallels in groups that we don't call cults, right? Like we all know cults are bad and I grew up in one of the worst of them. So I have this really obvious, really extreme story. But when we break down toxic group behavior into parts, we can see that those can be found in all kinds of groups, right? And you don't have to be considered mm -hmm. a cult or a terrorist group or a gang to be like a group that uses coercive control and right. toxic control on people. Yeah. And I love that you bring that up. And that's why it's also so exciting for me to talk to you, because not only did you grow up in a very extreme cult, but now you are educated in cult manipulation. And so you have this clear bird's eye view perspective where you can go back and look at your life and go, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Or I didn't realize that was going on when I was in it, which is basically the tagline for every cult is like, I didn't know that I was in a cult until I knew I was in a cult. <laughs> it's usually you don't see yeah. it because that's what you grew up in and that's how you were raised. And so on that note, I would love for you to give an explanation of what Children of God is, kind of how it came to be, and the basis of the whole religion. Yeah, for sure. You know, there's a reason that I started off uncultured. The epigraph just says the first rule of cults is you're never in a cult. I love I that line Anyone so that has much. been in sort of a toxic group uh, can understand that. So Children of God was started in 1968 by this kind of you know, consistently failing wannabe preacher guy who then suddenly finds his moment on Huntington Beach during the hippie era. And if we look at a lot of cults, we see this a lot, right? Like someone that just hasn't had that much success in anything until finally they find their huge thing. Um, Joseph Smith being a, a great example. Hey. Um, <laughs> um, but so so he started, you know, along with his teenage kids using young, pretty people and music to recruit followers. And, you know, the other thing we know is that cults pop up in time and space. And that is because when like societies are getting very complicated, when people are starting to realize that the systems are failing us and the groups are toxic and we're trying to pull things down and find new ways to be and new ways to do life, um, people can get drawn to cults, right? Mm -hmm. And also when the world is confusing, people are mm -hmm. drawn to cults because of clarity. And so, you know, Children of God starts in America in the late 60s, 70s, moves over to Asia in the 80s, moves to South America in the 90s, and not moves, spreads, right? And this was kind mm -hmm. of how the path of cults throughout the world went and my family went right along with them. So my grandfather, after a bad LSD trip where he claims he met Satan, is sitting in a park. He's a college educated CPA and he's sitting in a park the next day trying to figure out what to do with his life because he's just had this very negative religious experience and up, up walk the happy bubbly children of God mm. and off he goes with them. Um, and brings in his young girlfriend as well, who's my grandmother, Margarita. And her mother is so happy that her troubled daughter found something good to do with her life that she actually donates a house to the prophet. 
Um, oh, and wow. so that's how my family became kind of important people. And my grandfather also being one of the few college educated followers ends up, you know, being in the finances of children of God forever, still runs the money of what's left of them today. Mm. Um, and this is how my mother comes to be in 1972, like one of the first 10 children born into this group. Now, I say that the children of God went sex, love, and Jesus, kind of your basic evangelical Christianity, sorry, not sex, <laughs> faith, love, and Jesus, <laughs> over to religious prostitution, pedophilia for God, and this constant preparation for the apocalypse. And the important thing to understand is like that takes a decade to happen, right? And in this decade is the process of a group becoming a cult. Because what mm -hmm. we don't talk about too much is that a cult is not just a list of qualities that a group is. It's also this journey that a cult goes on. Mm -hmm. um, I'm really breaking this down in my next no, book, I love The it. Culting of America. <gasps> oh, yes. Um, and so, you know, so it's this process of isolating your followers and gaining complete control and then just slowly, slowly, slowly making it slightly more extreme. And there's this thing that I am, am coining the sacred assumption that I think is really helpful when we think about cults. So like the sacred assumption in Children of God was that this random man, David Berg, was truly the prophet of God. Right. And as long as you believed that, everything he said makes sense. Mm, right? Like yep. you can justify anything. In Nexium, the modern day sex cult, right? The assumption yeah. is that Keith Raniere was the smartest man in the world and he'd found this process for maximizing human potential that worked. Mm -hmm. And as long as you believe that, you can justify everything else. L. Ron Hubbard, Joseph Smith, the list goes on and on. <laughs> yeah. In the U.S. Army, we can talk about, you know, the idea of dying for the flag or even that America is a country worth dying for. And if you believe that, you can justify anything, mm, right? So right. the sacred assumption is really this important part of getting to ends justify the means mentality, which is kind of when you're in your end game, when you're true, really and truly a cult. Um, but it's this process, right? And so I say that really what set David Berg aside from just all your other kind of hardcore, high-demand evangelical Christianity that was coming up at that time. You know, his mother was an evangelical revivalist in Florida. And all he did was he took purity culture and control of sex and he flipped it. Mm. And he went from sex is bad, sex is only supposed to be in marriage, sex is, you know, all the things that evangelical purity teaches you. And he just switched it to... No, sex is love, right? And God is love and God made sex. And therefore sex is for everyone, including children. Ugh. And, you know, it became this like free love thing. And we just, we just do what we do and the world doesn't understand it. Um, but of course it wasn't free love. It was forced polyamory. And, you know, there's this other thing that we don't talk about too often, but I think is pretty important is that Purity culture and pedophilia culture are two sides of the same coin, right? Mm. They are both obsession with the sexuality of young children and especially yes. young girls. You and I growing up, me and the sex cult and you and Mormonism likely had a ton of similar experiences mm -hmm. regarding our sexuality and our bodies and how we were taught to think about it. 
and similar impacts in our lives today, even though we come from mm-hmm. these sort of what seems to be opposite sides of the spectrum. Yeah, I think the overlap there is the shame where you're just always you feel ashamed of your body. You feel like it doesn't belong to you. You feel like it's the property of men usually is how it goes. And there's just no ownership. There's no self-sovereignty, which is what I'm I mostly talk about, right, is self-sovereignty. And I think that's the hardest part. And so I'm I'm really interested to also get into more of this uh, reverse purity culture thing because we talk about purity culture so much on this channel and the damage and the harm that it causes. I think it's important because there's such a, a fine middle ground where I often get comments of people saying, oh, what do you want? Does everyone to go around and sleep with each other? I'm like, no, that's not what I want. I don't, I don't want people to be super obsessed with sex. I don't want people to think that sex is of Satan. I just want people to have a normally, normal, healthy sexuality, kind of like our own biology, what we're programmed to do. And so I'm I'm excited to talk about from your perspective what happens when you flip and you go to the opposite side because it's not good on the other side either guys <laughs> we're not preaching one extreme or the other we're saying find that middle ground. Yes, exactly. Um you know, I I will say this all the time and it's a big theme in my book Uncultured is that anytime a group is trying to legislate sex between consenting adults like it's complex, it's problematic. And that is basically Mm -hmm. every religion, every branch of the military, many, many companies, right? Like most universities and schools. And just like you said, people always go, oh, what? So you don't think we need to have any laws protecting any people? And it's like, no, but I have never seen a group legislate or regulate sex and put any emphasis on how complex this is and how Mm. easily it can be abused, Mm -hmm. you know, and especially when, you know, when we talk about similarities, right? So what is a huge topic? Mormonism is purity culture, but what is a huge topic in Mormonism? Sex. You all talk about sex a lot. Yeah, it's, it is a sex cult. I say it all the time. (laughs) You just talk about not having sex. Yeah, you talk about not having sex and we were the opposite. Everything in our life was sex. So even, you know, there were rules at some point put in that were supposed to protect the children, which, you know, I always say is just so ludicrous that people believe that telling the pedophiles to stop raping the children worked. Right. But there were definitely some people that grew up whose parents protected them somewhat or who didn't get, you know, have to deal with some of the abuse that you read about me going through in Uncultured. But they were still being raised in a world that was obsessed with sex, right? The children of God is still the cult that produced what has been called the worst artifact, worst cult artifact of all times, which is the 762 page Davidito book, which is a manual on how to raise children with pedophilia for God. Oh my God. And you know, all of our parents read that. All of the adults knew this, right? And and we had a another comic book, and this is a thing. Cults always have comic books. Mm. Getting into that in my next book too, um, because imagery is really useful for programming, right? And also yeah. boiling down arguments that don't have too much substance to them. Yeah. And so we had this comic book called Heaven's Girl, and it was, you know, 
like what comics books are, right? She was a superhero. She was fighting the Antichrist soldiers in the end time. And she was also intended to train us how to be raped and or gang raped for God and submit and not fight. And this was a thing we were reading from, you know, I don't even know. We would we would play Heaven's Girl when I was six and seven. You know, that was like our hide and seek game was you're outside oh, wow. hiding from the Antichrist forces. And when you get caught, you are going to be raped and tortured and killed. And that's the game we're playing. Oh, my gosh. When we call it a sex cult, like, it doesn't just stop at, you know, there was sexual abuse of children. It was in the programming. It was in the indoctrination. And it really was, like, the crux of the entire group was it was started by an incestuous, narcissistic pedophile who gathered other people like him and you know, radicalize them all into extremism exactly the way he wanted it to go. <sighs> Going through your book, I was just, like I said, speechless and stunned and just jaw to the floor of I can't believe this stuff was happening. And it seemed like the adults were okay with it. And I wanted to get your perspective on this, like a two-part question, because you were third generation, so that means your mom was also born in it. So that was all that she knew as well. And she w got pregnant with you at 15. And I'm wondering, because it was so normal, do you feel like from your perspective that the adults found it okay and or that they also kind of felt weird and off about it? Because you talked about this this birthday party of the sun signs where it's everyone in the the commune who had a birthday who was, I think, Gemini would celebrate together. But it just seemed like a dress up sex orgy. And I my jaw was on the floor when I'm hearing from your perspective of, I think, seven wearing this negligee, no panties, and you're just expected to go around and, and adults performing sex acts there like everything was normal and i'm just i could not fathom it yeah um i mean it really was it was absolutely normalized right and and part of so so there's two parts here so there's two parts of the children of god one of the reasons you don't hear about the children of god that much even though it was one of the most heinous sex cults is because they did a pretty good job of rebranding this came about mm. in large part because of my birth. So my mother at 14 gets pregnant, right? When my mom was 13 was when David Berg was full on in his like, it's okay to have sex with children phase. He had 14 girls of all daughters of his leaders sent to his house for special training. Um, they ranged from 14 years old to three. And he married all of them and he did, you know, sexual stuff with all of them. And the mother of the three-year-old ran the ceremony. Oh my gosh. Right. So oh my gosh. like when, when you will hear people try to say like, we didn't know there was some bad stuff at the top. There was some bad apples, right. Which I really take aim at in uncultured, like, no, you know, people that just stop at saying there were bad apples and aren't looking for like, where's the toxins, yeah. right? Like, why is this apple going bad? Yeah, That would be like someone being like, oh, I have an ant problem and just killing the one ant and then stopping. Right. Like, you're not worried about where this is coming in from. So 
you know, my mom's married off to the prophet when she's 13. And these were all just ceremonial. They weren't really considered his wives. Yeah. She is basically at the age of 14, his secretary and expected to sleep with whatever men demanded of her in the evening. And so by the time she's 14, she's pregnant. And suddenly they realize, okay, this is a problem. She's pregnant. The father's 39 years old. If this starts happening a lot, the cops are going to come shut us down hard. Mm -hmm. Right. So that this is when they went into, well, now you can't have sex with girls once they start having their periods until they're 16. So before that, it was implied that it was still okay. Um, eventually Berg dies. There's some sorts of rules put in place, but there's kind of a before and an after, right? When they realize that the world is out to get, to get us, they've called us a cult. We're in danger. They go all over the world. They change their name to the family of love and eventually the family international. And they become much more of a child trafficking organization. And cults are always about labor. So this is kind of always going to come up. But the children of God really did it. And in the 80s and 90s, they got into childhood education videos, really, really hardcore. Um, I'll, I'll send you a link to one of the videos. Maybe you can share it with your followers. sort of from the age of one to 10, I was used as a child actress, little like Apocalypse Lindsay Lohan. Oh boy. And we would then sell all these videos, both sort of your basic evangelical Christianity, fun kids playing around, and also just generic educational, not even religious at all videos. <laughs> even your dog's like, I don't agree with this. <laughs> Yeah, like, I don't like this. What's going on? And we would also produce like internal videos just for the family, right? So we've got our, our inside stuff and our outside stuff. And we sold millions and millions of these videos around the world. Um, and that's really what the children were for is we were the workforce, both to mm. keep the, the communes, these huge communes going and to be the sympathetic little children making money on the street of course, from Mormonism, you understand using children as a workforce. Yeah. <laughs> Missionaries. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. And I think Mormonism has a good parallel here where they once believed in polygamy. And then at some point they were like, okay, well, we can't do it anymore because mm -hmm. of the outside world. Mm -hmm. But we still believe that this yeah. is ultimately correct. Yeah. Right. And so, of course, if you don't change your values, you're not going to change 
the systems or what is going on in the group. And that was exactly the same thing that happened with the children of God. They were like, well, we believe in all this sex, but we, especially with children and whatnot, but we can't practice it because of the outside world. But we don't say our prophet was wrong and we don't, you know, sort of apologize for anything that happened in the past. We're just going to, we're going to move forward and be better. Um, and those yeah. of you that know I joined the military later, if this sounds like the army's attitude, or the military's <laughs> attitude toward rape culture in the military, yes. Oh my also gosh. The same. Yeah, we're going to say we're better. We're going to say we have all these new values. But in reality, all of the same stuff is still going on under the surface. Yeah. So, you know, back to then, I would say your original question about like, did the adults know? You know, I think that my mom grew up in all this stuff, but she also grew up so isolated and so controlled that she kind of became this true believer and stayed in the cult for a lot of her adulthood. And so, you know, it's not till after she's read Uncultured and, you know, there's some pretty intense scenes of mm -hmm. me with a specific predator named Uncle Jerry, who was a famous guy in our cult and in the broader world, too. And, you know, my mom said to me, like, of course, he was abusing me when I was a child. But because the rules had changed, it never crossed my mind that he was, um, you know, abusing my daughters. Right. Yeah. And I think really, really, this was the mind fuck that the children of God did on people because everything was about love. Everything was about just kind of be that phony evangelical God is love. Everything is great. Um, which covered up some of the worst forms of abuse, but you mm -hmm. still walk away from that going, but they were loving people who loved me. Right. Cause that's yeah. all. You've been taught. It seems to overlap with that almost narcissistic personality where they tell you, no, it's, I do this because I love you and I'm hurting you because it's going to help you and it's for your own good. And when I'm going through your book and hearing those stories of the punishments that you had to go through just for simply asking a question, it blew my mind. Would you be willing to share some of the the rules and the strictness and kind of the environment that you were raised in aside from what we've already mentioned? Yeah, no, great question, you know, and, and sometimes the sexual abuse from this cult gets so much focus that we don't really talk about everything else. So like I describe, you know, especially in the 80s and 90s when I growing up, it was growing up in a religious prison camp, you know, really is kind of what it comes down to. For the first 10 years of my life, I saw my parents for one hour a day. And other than that, I was in dorms with other children. We would work for most of the morning, basically cleaning and doing manual labor in the communes, which was called Jesus job time. Um, oh and then we would be sent into our ministries, which was like childcare ministry, kitchen ministry, right? Or yeah. out on the streets selling videos and doing all this stuff. So it was all kinds of labor. But the, you know, I think the biggest, like to me, the biggest form of abuse in the whole thing was just like growing up in two straight lines with no spontaneous moments of joy. Like you mm. could never be sure what the rules were, what was going to get you in trouble, what wasn't going to get you in trouble, right? It's because it was just so many adults. And 
you know, we can think of just like one family with parents who are very authoritarian. Yeah. And like when you're scared of your parents and you never know like what's going to make them angry one day or what's what's going to be fine one day. Now just compound that by 150 adults who you live with and oh. all of them have complete control over you. And all of them are encouraged to use very, very extreme forms of discipline. So David Berg famously advocated for spanking six month old babies and they would use things like silence restriction, right? If you said something that was considered to be disrespectful or doubting or out of the spirit, you would just not be allowed to speak to anybody for days, sometimes weeks. Um, and they would, you know, I talk in Uncultured about how they would like hang these signs around your neck sometimes, these cardboard signs that would say embarrassing things. Um, so one of the examples I use in the book is don't talk to me, I'm disrespectful, Mm. Right. So that everyone in this commune knows that they are supposed to be actively shunning you and actively ignoring you and essentially acting like you're dead um, as your punishment. I will say one of the things I've done now that I put that quote in my book and copyrighted it is I have T-shirts that say, don't talk to me. I'm disrespectful. Oh, I my God. And they're on my <laughs> website. I love that. That's how you get revenge on the antis. <laughs> you make money on the the thing that was meant to silence you, and now you're <laughs> so good. Oh my gosh, I love that. You know, I think it's it's pretty beautiful when we talk about like owning our stories in the process yes. of healing. But there's also this like, you know, I took four years. I wrote down all of the worst, most painful things that happened to me. And like, I own that now. It's a product that not only helps other people, but they pay me money for it. Yeah. And the photo that's on the cover, it's this photo of me as a two-year-old little girl dressed up in tinfoil armor, you know, being trafficked in Japan by religious extremists. And I did not want the book to have a photo of me on the cover. I was like, Mm. it's not this kind of book. Um, but eventually I sort of realized I was like, you know what? Like I didn't get to control any of that, but I own this photo and yes. I am going to use it to tell my story, to make, to make money, you know, and obviously to help people. Right. But I, we focus on all of those other kinds of things that happen when you write your story or talk about your story. And I just like to say that physically owning your story sometimes can be really, really healing as well. Absolutely. And there were so many times throughout your book where I was just cheering for you and your, uh, quote, disobedience, which was actually just curiosity and wonder of the world and asking questions. And I think one of my favorite moments was, correct me if I'm wrong, I think you were six or seven. You played a game of telephone and realized at the end of it how... (laughs) How twisted everything got. Yeah, you know, so what we were taught about history was kind of whatever David Berg copied from other old coercive religious leaders. And so we were taught that, you know, the the whole book of the Torah, right? Like everything that happened supposedly in the first 500 years of Christian history was just passed down by word of mouth until Moses wrote it down. That Mm -hmm. is what we were taught and you're not supposed to question any of it. So we play broken telephone and, you know, I often get asked like how the cult didn't break me because they tried so, 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 so hard. And I think it's just because I love logic. Um, Yeah. I'm very, very likely not neurotypical and I just love logic. And so to me, it was like, you just showed us proof 
that 10 people can barely <laughs> sit around in a circle and pass a phrase. And it was a verse that we all knew very well. Pass one phrase down without it getting distorted. So I pipe up and I'm like, well, how can the Bible be true? And um, yeah, that is the beginning of the very intense punishment scene that yeah. you get to walk through alongside me in the book. Um, but I also think a good just sort of description of how I was my whole life in the cult. Um, and I now have that child. So it's a... Uh, it's challenging, oh, really? but we always answer her questions. Oh. <laughs> yes. oh. I, I always say I have the daughter I deserve. And one of the very hard and fast parenting rules that we have is we never, ever say, because I told you so. Like, yeah. we have to explain ourselves to our child because she's a human and she deserves that. And oh. so much of parenting is just our whims. Or us trying to control our children based on what society like approves at the time. And so, mm-hmm. you know, it's interesting for us, uh, my husband and I, because we're very knowledgeable about the fact that we don't know how to be parents. And in 30 years, when she's a grown up, there's going to be 30 more years of psychology and everything yeah. telling us we did it all wrong. So the best we can do is just treat her as though she were a tiny human and not what a lot of people do and treat children like they are just objects to be controlled. Yeah. Oh, that's so touching. And I think the one thing that just really jumped out at me when you said, oh, I have a daughter that's basically like me. It It's such a beautiful thing because you get to essentially reparent yourself in the way that you weren't able to get as a child. You're able to give her all the things that you couldn't have and show her the experience of what real love is and what boundaries are and what curiosity should be and celebrate that curiosity. And that just makes me want to cry. I love it so much. I don't think you got the daughter you deserved. I think that you got the perfect daughter for you to be able to heal through her in a way. Do you ever feel that that's the case? No, I totally do. You know, and at the the end of the book is a an epilogue that I think is is pretty beautiful, and and that's when my daughter comes into it. And you know, she was born. My mom was with me. My mom, who's no longer in the cult, you know, was mm-hmm. with me there. And it's like thirty, almost thirty years later, this baby that looks exactly like her first child, right, Aww. is placed in her arms. And we sort of call her the do over baby. You know, she's yeah. the she's the first one, and four generations to not be born, you know, associated with a cult. And, you know, it's not like the impacts go away, right? Of course, we pass down generational trauma. And also, um, just like we get triggered, right? Like as parents, we get triggered by the things we would have gotten in trouble for as children. So it's a constant process of you know, it's it's both beautiful what you're saying. Like, it's like, I get to do all of these things for her. But I will also be like, like I was at a school assembly the other day and her class did this little rap for Arbor Day about trees. And it was just so normal and beautiful. And I'm sitting there in the front row with all this pride. And I'm just trying so hard not to just burst into sobs, yeah. you know, in in the front row of this performance because it, 
you know, when, when you see that beautiful childhood, it also brings up like, why didn't I get that? And there's really no answer for that. Um, one of the quotes I love about healing is healing is when we finally accept that there isn't a do over, you know, like we can't go back and change it. We can just only go forward with who we are now. Um, and it's hard. It's all hard. Yeah. I think another part of the book that I was cheering for is when the female leader came in to play because it seemed like she wanted to put a stop to a lot of the harmful practices that that the, I guess you call him grandpa, that grandpa put in place, the, the prophet and the leader. And I wanted to get your perspective on if you felt like she knew the whole time this isn't right. And as soon as he dies, I'm going to turn shit around or what you think her intentions were with making all of those seemingly positive changes. Um, you know, so what I would say about her Maria Karen Zerby is, you know, what's true about many cult joiners is like, they are also manipulated. You know, David yeah. Berg got his hooks into her when she was 19 years old and manipulated her for decades before she took over. However, she wasn't necessarily better. She was just her own brand of crazy. Mm. Um, and so she did, you know, outwardly, she's doing all these things to protect the children. But, you know, she was having, she was sexually abusing her own son when he wasn't oh, even two no. years old. You know, so, no. and, and this was cataloged and this was documented and they were proud of this. Mm. So again, it's, it's part of this greater narrative of the organization that the founder was a little wonky and some people took his teachings way out of control, but really we were just nice missionaries. And then it all got better when he died. And like, that really couldn't be further from the truth. Mm. Um, one of the things that happened was she codified things. So she created this charter of rights and responsibilities. Now, I believe this was the beginning of the end of the children of God as it existed kind of for 40 years with this, with 10,000 members and this huge militaristic structure. Um, and this is because once you give humans the idea of rights, they don't give them back without a fight. Right. And so you're taking all these people who have given up all of their rights for 30 years. Right. And all of these children who've been raised never to have any rights. And all of a sudden you've given us some rights. And so like for me, it was the first time I was eight years old and it was the first time I had language for the fact that adults were not supposed to have sex with children. Right. Mm -hmm. Like I didn't even have language for that before that. So in those ways, those things really can change, you know, really to change some things and make it a big difference. Um, and she put rules around punishments and those kinds of things, right? Like you weren't allowed to use silence restriction anymore. But she also brought in this concept of like having sex with Jesus in the spirit, which meant that like every child then was just subject to hearing large orgies of hundreds of adults sitting around having spirit sex with Jesus out loud. Oh. So <laughs> all this to say, it didn't necessarily get better. It just got different. And uh. it's one of the cases of a cult with the leader dying and successfully passing over 
to a founder who kept all of the same sort of command and control um, that had been set up for her. Yeah. And so you were in Brazil for the first eight years of your life. Were you eight? Was it eight when you moved to the other compound that was a little bit more isolated? So I was in, so I was born in the Philippines and then I was in Japan till about the age of three until we got deported from there. Mm-hmm. Um, a year in Peru and then a decade in Brazil. Um, okay. And so in the middle of that was when like we went from these huge communes of, we lived with a hundred to 150 people down to, you know, one of the things the new leader did when she took over was she said, okay, you can have a, you know, family children of God commune with only four adults. And so, and everything was to be decided on consensus and voting. Um, so it was really just like a whole reorganization, just like a company would go through and they choose a different leadership style or whatever. So I was 10 when we moved into like, a smaller commune with just us with another Brazilian family. Everything got smaller, including the big walls that surrounded us. Right. And this was when I started like learning the language Mm. and being sent out on the street a lot more to raise money. But one of the significant things for me was like, if I speak the language of this country, I'm safer. I have more freedom. And I, you know, if I need to run away, I can, because for the first six years, I had just lived on a white people American commune and didn't, you know, didn't speak Portuguese at all. Um, so that for me was really significant. And I taught myself to read in Portuguese uh, with a set of encyclopedias that I found that because they were in Portuguese hadn't been like, you know, usually they would take any books we had from the outside world and just get rid of all the pages that had like, any stories from outside, anything about evolution, anything with too much science, right? Anything. So I found these books that were like not destroyed because they were in another language. And so I would Mm. like in secret with dictionaries and stuff, um, try to teach myself Portuguese. Um, And I did. I still speak it to this day. That's amazing. I loved watching the transformation of this little girl who is just wanting to be independent. She just wants to learn. You know, you talk about taking a test in school and passing at a third, fourth grade level, and then they put you in first grade and you're just like, no. And you, you're you just this, this whole time you're cheering for this little girl that just wants to learn. And so I loved in that moment where you're reading the dictionary, you're learning the language, you had someone in the household who was willing to teach you Portuguese as well, which was awesome. You're figuring out how to cook for the first time and just given the the responsibility of cooking for the entire house and you're just like how do I turn on an oven but the way that you figured it out and just kept pushing forward it was so inspirational it just shows that when there's a will there's a way and you can figure it out I just think and I want to say as a disclaimer I know that's not the case for everyone not everyone has the opportunity to do that but in your situation where it seemed like, and probably more than seemed like, the odds were against you and you were able to poke your head up out of the dirt and just find the light. And I just thought that was so beautiful. Thank you. You know, I give so much credit to my mom and there's this beautiful story in the first part of the book where I'm three years old and this is one of my first memories is my mom sneaking me out of group time so we can have some alone time so she can teach me to read. 
And she tells me, you know, what her father told her when she was young. In her father's case, it was like justifying like, oh, we're not going to send you to school. In my in my mom's case, it was just her giving her a tool, giving me a tool that had helped her. And what yeah. she said was, you know, the only thing you need in life is for someone to teach you to read and everything else you can teach yourself. Mm-hmm. And that was just kind of one of those things that imprinted on me so young. And that's not to, as you said, you know, take away from the fact that like, n- nobody can just pull themselves up by their bootstraps, right? Like that's physically impossible to do. <laughs> um, that phrase was actually intended to connote impossibility when it first came out. Um, oh. <laughs> and everyone needs help. And I got so much help along the way, but I definitely have always had sort of this determination and also just love of, of education. Um, I'm probably still going to accidentally get a PhD in sociology here in the next few years. (laughs) That's amazing. I think one of the most infuriating things about your situation is they were saying all of this was because of what God wanted, or it was something in the Bible or whatever religious text you were looking at. Well, what was it? Uh, Spare the rod, spoil the child. And they took it literally. And just the way that they viewed even hospitals, like you had these major accidents and you were terrified of going to what you called systemite hospitals because they were of Satan. I think that's the most aggravating part is that people doing these horrible things in God's name. Like, how have you been able to unwind all of that? And what was your perspective at the time? Because I know you were kind of rebellious about, I don't even know if I want to believe in God, which got you into more trouble. But it seemed like you kind of ping ponged back between wanting to hold on to this hope and also saying a big F you to the guy upstairs. Yeah, you know, I think like sort of for me, it's always come back to the logic. And so, and, and maybe this is a bad thing, you know, obviously humans come up with religions because they're trying to explain the supernatural because we need something more. And maybe mm-hmm. I'm just a person that never needed something more. I kind of feel like I was always just like, I was just born an atheist to religious <laughs> extremists. And I, You know, but when that's all you know, it's not like you are sure either, right? Mm -hmm. So, like, since I was six, I was like, I don't believe in God. But then, of course, I was kind of scared, right? Like, what if they're right? What, you know? Um, And it it wasn't until, you know, for the longest time, it was just me. I thought something was wrong with me. Like, I don't belong here. This group is not for me. And it wasn't until I had my moment of what I call the crack in the brainwashing, right? When that sacred assumption gets broken. And this was on 9-11. This is a chapter in the book uh, called Babylon the Whore, which is what we called America. And, you know, on 9-11, I am watching live television for the first time, seeing the towers come down, hearing the term religious extremists, But then hearing my people sort of like praising and thanking God for his long promised judgment on America. Like the same thing we hear all those TV preachers do every time there's a tragedy, right? Oh, this is a punishment for X, Y, Z. And I, in that moment, had my kind of like, are we the bad guys? You know, like, are we religious extremists too? Um, And that was really the time that I was like, okay, you know, I need to get away. Um, But I do say that I think one of the saddest outcomes of 
growing up in the children of God is that for most of us, like religion, it's just not an option, right? Like when you're, when you're raised with something that you're taught to believe so intensely, and then you realize that it's not right. Mm -hmm. I always just kind of feel like, you know, short of being knocked off my horse on the road to Damascus and having some religious experience, you know, like what religion would I even choose? What God would I even choose to believe in? Um, And, you know, for most of the time, that doesn't bother me when people that you love die. It's obviously very challenging to not be religious. And that's one of those moments where I can really understand that having some sort of faith is comforting. Mm -hmm. I think one of the things that stood out to me as well was your humanity, regardless of everything that you had been put through and forced to do, you had this this wanting to make people feel happy and and you were talking about that moment when the the 911 thing happened and you were forced to go out and continue to try and get money from people by singing to them and initially they were very happy to have someone singing these beautiful songs but then when you asked for money or donations they were upset and then you said can we just sing for people i thought that was really sweet and showing that your humanity is still there and you still care about other people. And especially when you were able to form this really beautiful relationship with the boy that you were in the commune with, the backslider, as you called him, I just loved seeing you redefine relationships and re... What's the word? You took control of your life in a way that made sense to you, even though you had very little control all around you, it was a beautiful moment of reclaiming yourself. Do you want to talk about that at all? Yeah. So, you know, I don't remember sort of my first sexual experience. That's how young I was, right? I was probably somewhere between four and five Um, just from like the mixed memories that I have the first time a man like did bad, bad things to me. And so when you're growing up with that, you know, I kind of describe how here I am hitting puberty and like against my will starting to become interested in boys, Mm -hmm. which like I really don't want to happen because everything about sex to me is just torture and punishment and wrong. Um, Also, that was the only thing we knew how to do, right? So it was kind of like, I I like this boy. Now what do I do? Well, I'm going to go ask him to have sex with me. But, you know, it turned into a really beautiful scene, like definitely my first love. And it was just this moment of like me deciding, like, this is going to be my first time, you know, like, and definitely for years when I wasn't talking about the cult, right? Whenever it was like, oh, when did you lose your virginity in college? You know, I would just be like, oh, when I was 14 with this boy. And it was kind of like, I was choosing a normal story, you know, like I didn't get to have anything like a normal life. And one of the the things when you are sexually abused as a child is you don't get to have that normal sexual awakening that teenagers are supposed to have. Similarly, Mm -hmm. in purity culture, you don't necessarily get to have it either, right? Because it's so loaded down with shame. And it's so like, you're not supposed to, to have this. And so 
it was kind of this decision and it was significant that it was with a boy who was no longer in the cults, you know, because it was like, I am making this decision. I'm not doing what, and you know, if I, if I got caught, I would be in huge trouble uh, for having sex, even in the sex cults. But like, I'm doing this, I'm making this decision. I guess it's that sovereignty that you talked about though. I wouldn't have thought about it at the time. Yeah, you're kind of taking a stand and saying, like you said, I'm going to decide to do this and I'm going to decide that this is my first time and I'm going to decide how I want to proceed with it. And it was just such a beautiful scene in the book. So I appreciate you for putting it in there, especially as a contrast to other things that we were able to be a witness to that you wrote about. And I also found it interesting that when you moved to America, this sort of invisible veil was lifted where you started to realize, oh, not everyone has walls around them. Things seem better. Like you called America Babylon the whore, but people were so nice to you. And you're like, are these supposed to be the ones that are ruled by Satan or supposed to be destroyed? And it's good that you are able to start to put these pieces together and perk your head up a little bit more and start to question a little bit more. And then you were sent to Mexico. And I was like, no, she just, she just got out, you know? And yeah, back to the communes. Yeah. It was pretty significant in America. Like, like even just describing like the shock of like seeing huge houses in America without walls around them. Like Uh that is just not something you see in South America. Um, And, you know, part of the reason the cult moved to places had huge presence in places like India and Brazil. One was because rich people live behind walls with a lot of staff. And so it maybe doesn't draw too much attention And things are hidden behind those walls, but also Mm. because it's really easy to recruit people out of slums into your like nice white people commune. Mm. Um, And then even if they don't like it, you know, even if they think it's toxic or abusive, like what are they going back to, you know? So uh, the, the big walls were like a really huge part of keeping us separated, of keeping us isolated, and of keeping children, especially who you can't really lie to and program in the same way you can with adults, because they just keep asking questions and don't buy into their own programming. So you have to keep them separate, right? So all of a sudden, we move to the US briefly, but there are no walls, right? Like we are just living in a house. So like, they, they can't send us out on the streets in the middle of the day, right? Like in Brazil, a child begging on the streets at noon on a school day, nobody is going to bat an eye. But in America, like you're going to have issues with that, right? Mm-hmm. So um, it just literally like the walls came down and I got closer to the outside world. And I actually kind of got this experience where I started to feel a little bit like a, a normal American kid. And then boom, we go back. Um And, you know, of course, to flash forward to part two, really interesting when at 22, after I've worked hard for six years to put myself through high school and college and put my life together and get through some of my traumas. And then what happens? I joined the army and boom, what is on every army base? Really big walls, right? You are now back behind again um, for this like really really intense parallel of disappearing behind the walls of the commune, you know, and, and I think the, 
the thing that like everyone thinks they know what goes on. Everyone thinks they know what missionaries do in their little religious compounds. And everyone (laughs) thinks they know what happens to the daughters of America when they join the military and disappear behind the high walls of the, of the department of defense. And unless you've read uncultured or one or two other honest and hard hitting books, like you don't know what we go through. Yeah. Yeah, and that's what we're going to be talking about in the second episode. So to wrap this one up, I want to end on the story of you getting out and what made you decide to be like, this is the moment, I'm done, I'm getting out, and what that process was like of actually escaping back into America. Yeah, so first I will say, you know, we talked about like, I was I was that challenging child, right? Like, Every parent that has one of these, you know, right? Like she's going to be a whippersnapper when she grows up, but now she's difficult and they couldn't punish it out of me. And so I, even from the age of like six and seven, I was hearing people say, oh my God, you argue so much. You should be a lawyer, which was not a thing in our world, right? Like we were all to grow up and be members of the family. That was the only option. But sort of through accident, right, I got this idea in my head that I was going to grow up and be a lawyer. And so I knew I needed to go to high school. I knew I needed to go to college. Did not end up becoming a lawyer, but it did get me pretty far. And so also, 16 was the year you became an adult. So when I have my crack in the brainwashing on 9-11... I've got about a year and a half until I turn 16 and I know I'll be pregnant at 16, right? Like at 16, Mm. you are expected to start having sex with everyone and not using birth control. And my mother had eight children. She had seven kids in 14 years and you know, she probably had 10 pregnancies in 14 years. And I was like, I am not doing it. And so I launched my little rebellion Um, and I, you know, it took me about a year and a half. Um, And what I will say is like, I realized that if they thought they could save me, they would try. And there's some really horrific stories about ways the children of God tried. Um, Exorcisms are not fun. Uh, and so I realized that I needed to break kind of like the top rule, right? Like you have to make them think you're the bad apple and get you out really fast. And so for me, that climaxed in literally climbing over the walls of the commune in the middle of the night to go out and have sex with a boy that I had met in Mexico. Um, and this would now make me sort of untouchable. Um, I get caught and it goes down in a way I I didn't expect, but (laughs) it was sort of like this intentional process of like, first I'm breaking small rules and then I'm just making everyone popcorn for dinner. And then I'm refusing to speak (laughs) Spanish and and go out on the street and raise money. And then I am, you know, breaking like the rule that they're not going to get to keep me. Um, and yeah, so that was sort of how I got excommunicated and I'm, like not quite 16 yet. So I was, it was March. So I was, you know, I turned 16 in May. So I was almost 16. I end up, you know, my parents don't know what to do with me. I always thought it was going to, I was going to have to wait till I was 18 to leave the cult because I didn't have Mm -hmm. anywhere to go because my grandparents are in the cult too. Um, And fortunately, you know, I, my mom is 
has been married off to a man who's 20 years older than her. And he has some older daughters who've already left the cult. And so one of my stepsisters who had only met three times at that point, you know, 25 years old, just out of the cult herself, struggling to get her life together and agrees like, yeah, the 15 year old can come live with me. Um, and so, you know, she gives me a place to crash and, I, you know, we go to enroll me in high school. All I have is a social security card and a passport, like no record. I've just moved from Mexico. Um, and they tell me, they're like, we can't enroll you. You don't exist. Um, oh which itself gosh. becomes a big theme in Uncultured is kind of like me trying to prove that I exist and then wondering if I want to exist. Yes. And so I went from no school to 4,000 students in one of the largest public high schools in Houston, Texas. Oh my gosh. Which le leads me to this very dramatic moment, right? In the book, it's called Dazed and Confused. And it's kind of like the scene in Mean Girls, but extra. <sighs> it's, you know, so much of what we do when we come from these lives of extreme trauma is just try so hard to pass. And that leads to the opposite of what you are talking about on this podcast, right? That leads to living a fractured life. I call it closeted. So the majority of my peers from Children of God are still living in this closet, still mm -hmm. operate under the belief that if anybody knows about their past, they will just be like voted off the island, right? Like just mm -hmm. completely socially rejected. And one of I think the most healing things when I wrote Uncultured was realizing like I put on so much armor and I didn't need it. You know, most yeah. people in the world are lovely and want to help you and want to connect. And as soon as I started taking off that armor, I started integrating myself and meeting wonderful people. Um, yeah. But there's a lot of hardship before we get there. <laughs> Of course. And I can't wait to dive into your high school years, your college years, and then into the military. And just as a disclaimer, we're not calling the military a cult. We're saying yeah, it is cult-like. <laughs> let me say something about that because I'll also pitch my TikTok. So any listener, if you're interested, you can find me on TikTok where I, I just do a lot of content about this that we're going to talk about, which is mm -hmm. essentially to say groups do not break up so easily into cult, not cult, right? So yeah. the prologue of Uncultured is me standing there in basic training, holding this 50 pound duffel bag over my head and going, oh, I just joined another cult. And I know that I'm about to have this sort of high demand experience again. Mm -hmm. And so we're looking at the parallels, right? We're looking at where toxic behavior can come in. In yeah. the book I'm writing now, it's called The Culting of America. And I do, a, I share a lot of this content on TikTok. I am actually building a cultiness spectrum, right? These 10 areas of group behavior that like, if you do all of these things, congratulations, you're a cult. <laughs> However, I guarantee that every single person alive has experienced some of these things in some of the groups that they're in. And that doesn't mean that your group is a sex cult that's going to traffic children, but it does mean that these are the sort of threat areas where toxic control can grow and where narcissistic people can take advantage of you or can radicalize you. Yeah. Um, so yeah, come join me on TikTok. It's a lot of fun. We're always like knitting and talking about cults. 
Yes. What's your TikTok handle? Daniela Mestinek Young. Perfect. I'll put it on the screen and in the description so people can find you. And a couple things before we go. I have a patron who has a question. I like to uh, bring the conversation over to Patreon and give them an opportunity to ask questions to our guests who we're recording with. And she wanted to know, what are any physical issues you experience currently as a result of being in this cult, if any? Hmm. Um. Physical issues. Well, this will be an interesting one uh, because cults always control, I should just say toxic groups, always want to control your bladder. Um, mm. I usually think of my bladder problems as part of the military not being great about women, but definitely, you know, as young as two, three, four years old, we were expected to go all night without using the bathroom. Um, so that would be right. Like a certain physical issue. I am large boned, but very small and I'm from taller people. So I believe that I am underdeveloped because we were just malnourished and essentially mm. very, very close to starving our whole lives. Um, and one of, I would say the biggest issues was that took me 20 years to realize after going from cult which cults are always skinny worship. Um, I'll be digging into that in the next book too. Uh, to the army, which is skinny worship, to realizing that like, oh, I have struggled with disordered eating for 20 years wow. by accident, right? Not even realizing it. It was part of the perfectionism. It was part of doing hard things. It was part of being perfect in the army. And I eventually realized I don't, I don't even know the right signals for hunger, right? Like we grew up under so, so, so much food control that that is a very big issue for me. So for example, when I feel hungry, my first instinct is take a really deep breath and power through it. It's not mm. go get a snack, yeah. right? So those are some of the things that I am having to retrain myself on, Um because that was, you know, inculcated into me since birth. Wow, thank you for sharing that. I I can't imagine dealing with all of that on top of the psychological harm that these high control groups cause. And I think that's probably the thing that most people can relate to is the psychological control that is put on these people who are forced to conform, whether it's the behavior, your dress, your sexuality, so many of these things that we're still kind of unpacking and unwinding. So I can relate to that part. But thank you so much for sharing your story. I just, I know, again, as someone who is also a trauma survivor and a cult survivor, that it takes a lot to be willing and be open, as open as you have been and as you are in your book. So I commend you for that. Thank you for sharing your story with the world in your book. It's beautiful, and I recommend everyone go get it, Uncultured. And um, we need our Linda Listen moment before we go. So spicy statement to someone who's pissed you off or any advice for our listeners. Spicy statement to someone who's pissed me off. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Um, my spicy statement to the cult is... You cannot traffic children, film it, and think nobody's ever coming for you. I'm definitely mm. coming for you. And the way you put a church out of business is taking all their money. 
that's my spicy statement. I have a really yes. good one for the next half. Amazing. Linda, listen, she's coming for you. <laughs> I love it. Um, any final thoughts before we go? Just, you know, thank you so much for having me, for giving this platform, for me to share my story, for doing this work. You know, as you said, like, we have such different stories, but such similar experiences. And, you know, that really is the power of memoir. And you will read about in Uncultured about how not sharing my story almost killed me. And... Mm sharing my story, writing my story was so hard. Recording the audiobook was one of the hardest things I've done. Mm. But getting to connect with people like you, like listeners and readers, right, that say, oh my God, you described this thing that I went through. Yeah. You know, like I'm being able to be the crack in the brainwashing for some people. I'm able to give language to some people um, and that's what so many books have done for me. And so I just, I love it so much. And I love hearing from readers. And thank you so much for having me on here. Of course. Thank you for saying that. And you have inspired me to continue writing my memoir, which is difficult. So I can relate. I can relate on that. Um, great. Well, thank you again. I will put your contact links below for anyone that wants to find you. And for our listeners, if you want to support the podcast, it would mean a lot if you could become a patron, uh, patreon.com slash cults to consciousness. And until next time, follow your highest excitement, be conscious and be well. Thanks for listening. If you like what you hear, it would mean a lot if you could like and subscribe on YouTube and leave a review or a comment to help with our visibility. You can also find me on social media at Colts to Consciousness or reach out by email at Colts to Consciousness at gmail.com.